0: Let me ask you a question. Which table did you sit at in the high school cafeteria? You know what I'm asking, right? (laughs) Ken just said the Monty Python table. (laughs) Yes, uh, we know that that means geeks, yes. Yes. so, so the, the table is in the high school cafeteria, right? You, you know what this means. We, we, in my, ta- my high school, we had a few tables. We had the basketball team table. So basically 12 guys all wearing the same shoes. We had the Vogue Tech table. Now, in my state, and it was called Voke for short. It's what BOCES is now, I think, in New York. But uh, anyway, it's 12 guys all wearing the same work boots. Um, the skaters had a table. Uh, the the Monty Python people had a table, yes. They had their 20-sided dice. and they didn't, have, uh, didn't have disc golf back then, but I think there'd probably be some overlap there. You know how this goes, right? I mean, the, the tables. And, and I think that sometimes that's a little bit of a cliche, and we use it totally disparagingly, when really I think how it starts is just people want to sit with their friends. You like to be with people who are like you. There's really no harm in that on the face of it, correct? Spending time with your friends is a good thing. Even if your friends are jerky athletes, wouldn't let me play with them at recess. No. But sometimes what happens is that it, these, these groups of friends, these friendships actually become these, these social circles that are then really hard to permeate. Very hard to, to transcend the social strata in a, in a high school environment, and that's true in a lot of places. That can, that can seem totally harmless as long as you are inside the circle, correct? Especially if it's a, a fancy or, or popular circle. But I think most of us in the room also know the pain that can be associated with being outside that circle. And I won't ask you to do a show of hands um, because sometimes that's still, I mean, even years later, that can still kind of stick in your craw a little bit. What I would like to ask you to do is just inhabit that pain for a minute. Allow yourself to remember how it Felt if you were excluded from a group, whether it's a cafeteria table in a high school or you know, any other group. Allow yourself to remember how that felt. And hold on to that feeling because it's, I think, will come in handy in a little bit. We're doing this series on hospitality. And Today, we're talking about the tradition of hospitality, how the early church, and actually went way deeper than the Christian tradition, uh, practiced hospitality just as part of their everyday life. And I'm I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. I want to start with uh, the passage that we looked at last week, well, one of them. I'm just going to do a couple verses from it. It's from Deuteronomy 10. Do you Remember we looked at this last week if you were here? Do you remember without looking what the, the section heading was? Do you remember? Nobody remembers. There's something about the law, right? Our editors put in this this section heading the essence of the law. The law being the the code by which the Jewish people lived their entire life. Um, And one of the things that it says in there, and I'm going to read verses 17 through 19, is this. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, "...who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow..." And here's the part that I want to emphasize. "...and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing." And Moses goes on to say, "...you shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt." And if you remember, last week I I observed that that that's kind of a strange thing to hear... From the leader of the Jewish nation, because from what we know of Judaism, especially how it was practiced then, there's a great deal of separation between the, the Hebrew people, the chosen people, and everyone else. God had elected Abraham and his descendants to be the ones through whom he would, and that's where things get a little fuzzy, because you kind of think, well maybe those were the ones that he wanted to save and everybody else was in trouble. And that's kind of how it came across a lot. But remember, if you know your Bible, and, you know, some of us do, some of us don't, that's okay. I'm going to tell you that the reason that God chose Abraham to make a nation of great people and the reason that he blessed those people was so that they could what? Be a blessing. You have been blessed so that you can be a blessing. And all the nations of the world... And by the way, that word nations is goyim. So he, that's where we get that kind of derogatory Gentile thing. All the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham. So it's actually more fitting than it might have seemed at first that God says that, or that, Moses says, God loves the strangers and you shall also love the stranger. And that's the essence of the law. Blessed to be a blessing. And so what I want to do this week is give you a short history of hospitality in the early Christian church and uh, because this is, this is the basis for Christianity, and we're going to see if there are some lessons that we can learn from this history. So it's going to be part Bible, part history. We'll, we'll just kind of explore it as we go. So let me give you a foundational passage from the New Testament, from the Christian scriptures. It's in Luke 14, and if you want to go to page 849 in these red Bibles, you can do so. Keep, keep track. If you brought your own Bible, I can't help you with the page number, but it's about, oh, that far. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, I always say this. Well, I don't always say it, but I always try to remember to say it. You are welcome to take one of these red Bibles home with you. They're for use in worship here, but if you don't own one, they're for you also. You can, you can now own a Bible. So let's read chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And I'll set this up for you a little bit. Jesus is at a dinner he'd been invited to at the house of the, one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Pharisees were the Jewish teachers there. They they were experts in the law. And so Jesus has been invited to dinner at the coolest of the cool cafeteria tables in the Jewish religious system. The alpha betas, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And here's, uh, here's what he said. He had told a parable and then... Somebody answered him, and this is what he said to the person who invited him. Verse 12 He said also to the one who had invited him When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The early church took this commandment seriously. um, And it it became much bigger than just a practical concern, where you invite people who are of lower station than you, so that they can't repay you, and so you'll receive an eternal reward. This kind of... uh, the way Jesus describes it, it almost sounds like you're rigging the, the eternal system a little bit in your favor. But I think he meant much more than that, and the early church certainly practiced much more than that in practicing hospitality. So I'm going to take you through from the beginning until now in about, I don't know, five or ten minutes. Um, it's only a few thousand years, so don't worry. The uh, first thing to know is that the spread of the gospel, the the, the dispensation of Christianity to the... Entire known world at the time depended on the hospitality of strangers to the point that if there was no hospitality to strangers, uh, well, I mean, I'm sure God would have figured out another way to do this, but certainly as it happened, without hospitality to strangers, the gospel would not have spread. Because the disciples, Jesus, you remember, sent them out two by two, said, Go into strange towns, and he gave them particular instructions about how they should respond to the the way people greet them and so forth. But the whole thing was based on the idea that these disciples, these first evangelists, which just means messengers, could go into a strange city, meet a strange person, and find lodging in his house or her house. And without that freedom to travel and to stay with strangers, I'm, I, I mean, it'd be interesting to see. I don't know how the gospel would have spread. Here's another thing to remember. That early Christian worship didn't take place in churches because there was no such thing as a church. Christianity grew out of Judaism, but it very quickly became uh, forbidden to practice Christianity in Jewish synagogues. And so the entire brand-new religion, the entire thing, was a stranger, if you will, It had no place to lay its head. Christianity as a whole had no house to live in. And so where did the early Christians worship? Well, they worshiped in their own houses. So you have this gathering that would come into your house of other believers, and you would do all the things that Christians do even today when they gather for worship. They would sing, and they would celebrate communion, by the way— Could somebody take care of the communion elements? We're going to need those in about 20 minutes. (laughs) Um, They would celebrate communion together. They would hear the word read. The teaching of the apostles would be read. All these things would happen, but it wouldn't happen in a church at first because there weren't any. It happened in people's homes. And so there was this really interesting blurring of the lines between home and church. It's kind of the same thing in a lot of ways. So hospitality came very naturally to the early church in its beginnings because it, the, the, the faith couldn't have spread without it and because there would have been no place to practice the faith without it. It came very naturally to the early Christians to be hospitable and it showed. There's a remarkable little tidbit of history. In the year 362, the Roman emperor, who at that time was Julian, and this is post-Constantine, so Christianity has had its its fun times with the Roman Empire. Julian was quite hostile to Christianity. In fact, he called Christians atheists because they didn't worship the Pantheon. Um, so Christians, we were the first atheists. That's, <laughs> that's pretty funny um, considering how uh, how much tension there has been in the last five or six years between the church and and the atheist community, but um, we we were the original atheists. We were the original outcasts. Um, But Julian saw the Christians caring for all the poor people of the entire world, not just the Christian poor people, but the non-Christian poor people. And Christianity was growing like crazy as a result. And he told his Hellenic priests how to put a stop to this. He said, you have to imitate the Christians in their efforts to, quote, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. So this hostile Roman Empire saw the life that the Christian community was leading, the hospitable life that the Christian community was leading, and instructed the Hellenic priests to to mimic that and imitate it. As time marched on, here's another interesting development. The church was instrumental in starting hospitals. Hospitals didn't exist as such. Thank you very much. Here's one example. St. Basil in uh, 370 constructed a hospital in response to a massive famine, food shortage, People were sick, people were dying, left and right, and he started a hospital. And after Basil died, his eulogy included mention of this hospital, and it was called a storehouse of piety, which I think is a lovely turn of phrase. It's it's like a silo, (laughs) a storeroom of the practice of faith. All because it was a, a centralized location where hospitality happened. And did you catch the, the word connection there? Had you ever noticed that before? That the word hospitality contains the word hospital? Hospital was a place where you would go to receive hospitality. As a sick person, you would go because you needed hospitality. we are getting to see that hospitality is more than just doilies. <laughs> right? And, and fancy muffins. I like fancy muffins. I could do without the doilies. But, you know, all that aside, hospitality is much bigger than that. And because I love words, as you know, I have to give you another little etymology aside. Okay? The, one of the Greek words, uh, our New Testament originally written in, uh, in Greek, one of the Greek words for hospitality is philoxenia. Any Greek nerds can help me guess what that means? What does Philadelphia mean? This Delphia, Delphos' is city, so Delphia, the city of brotherly love, or Delphos' is brother, I'm sorry, um, Paulus' city. Um, it's been a long time since I took Greek. I do know this, though, <laughs> that that phila means love. So philozenia, philozenia, is love of what? Strangers. you know the word xenophobia, where you're, 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 you hate people or are afraid of people who are different from you? Hospitality in the original Greek is literally the etymological opposite of xenophobia. How's that for a nerdy sentence? Now you know which table I sat at, right? (laughs) By myself. No. (laughs) I I sat with all the other people who like to talk about etymology. By myself, yeah. Philosenia, love of the stranger, love of people who are different from you. That's what hospitality is. Another famous saint of the church, St. John Chrysostom, known as the golden-mouthed preacher, he exhorted people in his congregation. He gave them a very specific instruction. He said, when you make your house, set aside a special room just for strangers to, to stay in when they visit. I as a pastor, might be able to, to exhort my congregation to do that, and I imagine I'd get approximately 0% response, um, maybe 1%, I don't know. But Chrysostom told his whole congregation, you have to build a special room in your house for strangers to stay in when they visit, or at the very least, you should allow the poor people who you already know to stay there, if you're a little nervous about strangers. St. Benedict, the founder of Western monastic practice, Wrote the Rule of St. Benedict, which is still used today in certain monastic communities as a guideline for life. And one of the things that it said in the rule was that the monks, the people who were living in this uh, cloistered life, had to receive travelers and the poor. It was non optional, had to do it. The Celtic people uh, had monasteries as well. And they thought hospitality and welcoming strangers was so important that the bishop and the abbot of the community, if they were fasting for a period of time and a stranger came to their community, they would break their fast so that they could eat a meal with the stranger. Hospitality was more important than personal spiritual practice and piety. And on and on and on. The early church practiced hospitality in this really amazing way. Now, as we entered the Middle Ages, as unfortunately was the case with a lot of the good things of Christian practice, but not all of them. I think the Middle Ages get a little bit of a bad rap. But hospitality began to degrade in the Middle Ages. And what happened was it became an opportunity to express your status within the community. Hospitality would be practiced and offered to wealthy people, to famous travelers. I would be happy to welcome the bishop when he comes but it stopped being something that happened for poor people and sick people and strangers, people with dirty feet. Hospitality became a status symbol. It became about who you could sit around the table with, who you could be seen with. Now in the Reformation... There was a small resurgence in the original practice of hospitality. Um, Luther and Calvin were particularly appalled at the way hospitality had been co-opted for status during the Middle Ages, and so they did some things to try to improve that. But interestingly enough, they didn't use the term hospitality anymore, and so the, the tradition still kind of got lost a little bit. Later on, one of my favorite church and uh, uh, history people— especially more modern church history, is John Wesley. And uh, John Wesley and the Methodists started to form groups that would practice their faith together, and it started to look a little bit more like that house church thing. And so hospitality began to happen there, and Wesley himself was known to eat at the table with uh, with the, the least of the people in his his communities. But the other thing that started to happen then is that some of those centers of hospitality, including hospitals, began to be institutionalized. And hostels began to be formed. Special places that were not somebody's home where strangers could come and gather together and stay and be lodged. We still have hostels today. Sometimes, If you've ever done the backpack across Europe thing, you may have stayed in hostels. I've stayed in a hostel now and then, and uh, it's sort of like a dorm setting where you are with other people, but it's not somebody's house. Hospitality was institutionalized. It became particularly important with hospitals. And, and you can see how this all leads to the present day where just about every aspect of hospitality has been institutionalized. Hospitals. Hotels, social services. I mean, when's the last time that you went to someone's home or to a church when you were sick? I mean, you call 911, they send an ambulance. They do not take you to Artisan Church. We've had some doctors in our midst, but <laughs> they take you to the hospital. That is, that is the centralized place where sick people are cared for. It's not happening in homes. It's not happening in churches. It's not happening in monasteries anymore. When's the last time when you traveled to a strange city and stayed in a house in the home of a stranger? I mean, has anybody in the room ever had that experience? A couple of hands. Yeah, that's about what I expected. A couple of hands. But no, you go to a city, where do you stay? You stay in a hotel. You pay them 120 bucks or whatever, you get to swim in the pool and everything. I don't know about you, but when I go to a hotel, it is not to make friends with strangers. (laughs) When I'm in a hotel, I want nobody to talk to me after I check in except the people I'm traveling with. I see somebody in the hall, I'm like, oh, this place is a dump. Hospitality is, you know, and, ho- and, and and hotels do not go together. It's the hospitality industry, you know, but as practiced by Donald Trump, not not Saint Basil or Saint Benedict or Saint Chrysostom. And I mean, hospitals are wonderful, and hotels are wonderful. These are great ways to to, to be healed and made well when you're sick. It's a great place to stay when you're traveling. Obviously, you can see how there's been this distancing, this separation of personal relationship. Those personal relationships do not happen in those places for the most part. And that's where we are today. So we've gone from the early church being instrumental in in hospitality to hospitality being uh, outsourced to the world outside the church. And so what can we learn from this history? I'm sure that you have already started to make some applications in your mind, but I want to suggest just two applications. And I would get an F in a a preaching class because it's a two-point sermon. You're supposed to have three. But I'm going to give you two. The first thing that I would suggest that this history can teach us is that we ought to try to recover an institutional overlap institutional overlap what do i mean by that well i simply mean that those lines which have become so stark and clear between church and household primarily ought to be a little bit more permeable a little bit softer perhaps mark and dell last week talked about uh, their practice of hospitality in their home And if you weren't here last week, I highly encourage you to go and listen to that sermon audio um, because their story was incredible. But you remember what they talked about, how they they invite people from their neighborhood to their house for Monday night dinners, and they invite newcomers to to their church, artisan church, to their house for the same Monday night dinners. And so for them, the line between church life and home life, at least for a few hours on Monday nights, is completely blurred. They're not the only ones to do that. It's not the only way to do that. But I do think that we in the church have compartmentalized our lives. Now, that's not unique to people in the church. Everybody in America has compartmentalized their lives. But for those of us in the church, we are absconding a responsibility that we have by doing that. By having our home life over here, and we're going to put a big wall around it. And work life over here, life over here, and we're going to put a big wall around that. And then church life over here. And no, I don't just go to church on Sundays. I do all kinds of things at church. I go uh, to our special events. I, you know, I do all these. I do even do some outreach. I mean, nowhere near my house. But I mean, I do all those things. But no, it's all got a little wall around it. And if we could avoid that compartmentalization or try to to deconstruct those compartments, at least, I think we'd be taking a very important step toward recovering this tradition of hospitality as it was practiced by the earliest Christians. Now, obviously, we can't go back culturally in time to a place where, you know, the, you know strangers come through all the time and it's just common practice to put them up in your house and you know, hospitals happen in the church. We're not going to get all that back. We just have to to make these applications as best we can. The first observation, the first application I would suggest is that we recover an institutional overlap, particularly between home and church. The second observation is even more difficult. It can be practiced at home. It can be practiced in church. Actually, it could even be practiced if you want to maintain that, that separation between the two. But it's more difficult because the second recommendation is that we recover a willingness to welcome and serve the people that Jesus called the least of these. Do you remember all the way back to Emperor Julian who saw the church's success exploding because they did what? They welcomed whom? The poor. Not only their own poor, He said ours as well, everybody's. If we want to recover a willingness to serve and welcome the people that Jesus called the least of these, the first thing we have to do is obliterate the cafeteria table approach to socialization. Socialization. You see, it seems to me that when we fail to reach out to people who come in our doors, because they look like they might not fit or they might be a little awkward, we are not only living out the worst parts of the high school cafeteria, but we are also living out the worst part of the Middle Ages. Because we are essentially saying, you are not good enough for me to want to welcome you. Ah, family comes in, minivan, all clean. The kids have their hair brushed. They probably have a lot of money. How are you? Welcome to Artisan Church. I don't like that. And I, I please understand that as with practically everything I ever say, This is directed at myself as much as it is at at any of you. But sometimes I feel like our approach to hospitality is a little bit too high school cafeteria. It's a little bit too middle ages. It's a little too much status and not quite enough welcoming the least of these, the poor, the sick, the blind, the lame. Literally or figuratively, okay? Because, again, we don't have blind and lame people walking around Begging quite as much as they did in the early church. Do you see the point that I'm trying to make, though? That we are prone to make judgment calls about people who walk in our doors sometimes, and it prevents us from being truly hospitable to them. Remember what Jesus said to that leader of the Pharisees when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you know what he said after he said that? He told another parable. If you want to turn back in your Bibles with me again, we'll read this parable together. Luke 14, starting now with verse 15. Remember, he's just told the the leader of the Pharisees that when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And one of the dinner guests on hearing this said to him, something that I think is probably trying to sound really smart theologically, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, here's the parable, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who'd been invited, come for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I love that. I'm going to try out my new oxen. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and lanes, and compel people to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. I read that last sentence a couple of times in my head. I tell you, none of those who've been invited will taste my dinner. And the first time I read it, what I thought it was saying was, none of those who are invited are willing to taste my dinner. Did anybody hear it that way when I read it just now? The way I read it the second time was, (laughs) none of those people are going to taste this dinner. They're too busy with their oxen and their plot of land and their new spouse. Spouse. None of those who are invited will taste my dinner. And the people who will, they're the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. To me, this is a really interesting parallel to the passage that we read last week. Do you remember the New Testament passage from last week? It was the story of the great judgment, where at the end of all things, the king separates the sheep and the goats. And do you remember what the criteria was for whether you're going to enter into glory It was whether you had seen Jesus hungry or sick or a stranger, thirsty or in prison, and had taken care of him. And the people all responded, but Jesus, we never saw you that way. And Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of these people, you've done it to me. And if you haven't done it to the least of these, you haven't done it to me. that same judge on the throne separating the sheep from the goats by whether or not they reached out to people in need tells this story about how the banquet table that he's laid is being ignored by the people who he originally invited and is instead going to be filled with those same needy people. Now, Just as an aside, I think on a theological level, this is partly about the opening of God's kingdom to people who are not sons and daughters of Abraham, to people who are not Jews. I think it goes deeper than just this. But for our purposes today, what an amazing picture that the kingdom of heaven is going to be filled with poor, broken, crippled, blind people, A, and the people who welcomed them on earth. And the fancy people and the people who ignored them are not going to be there. (laughs) That's, to me, an incredible and sobering connection between this parable in Luke 14 and the judgment in Matthew 25. And I have uh, nothing more to say about that except read it and obey. (laughs) Uh, Will you pray with me? God, we give you thanks not only for this story from Scripture, your inspired word, but also these stories from church history, stories of how our spiritual ancestors practiced this this discipline of hospitality. And we pray, God, that as we seek to regain some of what they had, applying it to our own context, that you would not only give us wisdom in how to do that, and courage to be willing to do it, but also an appropriate level of fear and awe at these last words that we've seen from Jesus. We pray that we would be reminded and inspired and exhorted by his words to invite the poor Crippled, the lame, and the blind, and the unpopular, and the poorly dressed, and the weird, to our table, to our community, and ultimately to your table and your community. We pray, O Lord, that our practice of hospitality would be welcoming strangers, meeting their physical needs, and also welcoming them to a new spiritual reality, faith in your son Jesus, in whose name we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Well, Jesus told this parable about a dinner, and he actually also invites us to his dinner. We talked about this last week, how the most important recurring Christian ritual was instituted by Jesus around the dinner table. And he invites us to come, and I invite you now to come and receive the bread and the cup. Take it as food for your souls. Do it in remembrance of his death and resurrection and the sacrifice that he made. Do it in unity with each other, and especially today, do it remembering that you have unity with all the people around you. The ones who look like you and the ones who don't, the ones who are in your socioeconomic class and the ones who aren't, the ones who are healthy, the ones who are sick. Everybody is welcome to this table, to Christ's table. So when you come to this table, maybe you might want to, rather than, Doing like what I did in the hotel hallway, looking down and walking back to your seat. Look to your left or your to right, and to your right, and look at the brother or sister who's next to you. And remember that Christ invited you to this table. Christ invited that person to this table, and it's your responsibility now to invite others to this table as well. So come and receive communion. We're going to continue to worship in song while we do that. Um, the other thing that will happen during this time is that we will have. People at the back corner there who are ready to pray with you, if you'd like to pray together with uh, someone, we'll have at least one man and one woman back there who would be willing to pray. Uh, if, if prayer is the, seems to you to be the more proper response to what you've heard today, rather than communion, uh, definitely would encourage you to take advantage of that. Um, but however you respond, do it in, in obedience to God and His voice in your heart.